Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. As I'm recording, nearly 400,000 ethnic Rohingya have fled Myanmar across the border to Bangladesh. And by the time you are listening to this, that number will almost surely be much, much higher. Since late August, security forces from the government of Myanmar, also called Burma, have attacked villages and towns in a seemingly coordinated fashion to create a massive displacement crisis. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has described what is happening as a, quote, textbook example of ethnic cleansing. On the line with me to discuss this current crisis is John Sifton, the Asia Advocacy Director of Human Rights Watch. We spoke just after he got off the phone with his colleagues on the Myanmar-Bangladesh border who have witnessed profound scenes of destruction. John also describes satellite imagery he's reviewed that depicts towns, villages, and neighborhoods being burned to the ground. John offers a useful background on the plight of the Rohingya population in Burma and explains why Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate and de facto leader of the country, has been such a disappointment and either unwilling or unable to stop this onslaught against a minority community in her own country. We also discuss some opportunities and suggestions for how the international community might better confront this crisis. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I've done several episodes now on the Rohingya issue. You know, it's one of those under-the-radar global issues that I like to highlight from time to time. However, now it is very much in the headlines, though, for all the wrong reasons. So the situation is pretty awful right now, and I'd like to do whatever I can to help raise awareness around it. So if you know someone who might benefit from learning a little bit more about the plight of the Rohingya in Myanmar and Bangladesh, then please do share this episode with your friends and, and colleagues and post it to social media. Try to just raise some consciousness here. Uh, and of course, if you want to get in touch with me for any reason, if you have questions or comments or have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please just use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, now here is my conversation with John Sifton of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the latest violence in Burma was not unexpected. Uh, for months, for years, human rights groups and others have been warning of an explosive situation in Western Burma. Um, it all goes back decades to a longstanding um, antipathy towards the local Rohingya Muslim population who... Um, 
the local Rakhine Buddhist population have often resented and considered as interlopers from abroad, from Bangladesh, neighboring Bangladesh. They've been labeled as non-Burmese citizens. The fact that they've been Muslim has been brought up time and time again in ways that suggest that they're somehow involved in terrorism, even though there was no evidence of you know, any type of violence on their part. But um, in 2012, uh, violence broke out after rumors and of a rape of a Buddhist woman by some Muslim men surfaced, and there was a conflagration that led to large-scale displacement. This was in 2012. Mm-hmm. And, and this, that, that displacement was mostly communal violence, though, right? That was sort of winked at by yeah, the government. Yeah, I wouldn't call it communal violence. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't call it communal violence because it wasn't like they were fighting, you know, one-to-one. It was more like... Um, one community, the Rakhine Buddhist population, attacked another community, and but they were they were um, helped by local security forces, police, and um, border police uh, in the area who took part in the violence or stood by in the violence. But the bottom line is, after that violence, a lot of the Rohingya uh, were displaced, and some of them were ghettoized. Uh, they were either sort of concentrated into certain neighborhoods, like in Sitwa, there's a ghetto in Sitwa where they're essentially ghettoized into place they can't really leave and and Sitwa is a, is a city in Rakhine state Rakhine state yeah okay yeah and then up north near another city called Mungdao that you know same thing they're sort of isolated but many of the internally displaced were also put in camps that also became ghettos and then even those Rohingya who were still in their villages um, were subjected to huge travel restrictions and restrictions on their access to health education um, and so you had a very, very uh, aggressive governmental posture towards the Rohingya from 2012 to until this August um, that was leading to enormous resentments. And uh, it appears that what happened is Rohingya, uh, a, a small number of Rohingya decided to form some kind of arms group. Um, they weren't very well funded. They certainly aren't very well armed. But um, they engaged in an attack last October on some on, a, on an army post, which led to a disproportionate response, where the Burmese military sort of mowed down a whole bunch of villages, torturing them. We had satellite imagery and later testimony sort of demonstrating that the military went on a campaign where they burned down scores of villages thousands of homes and displaced hundreds of thousands of more. And that was last that, October. Th- that was last October. But then, you know, that kind of died down after a few weeks. Then another attack by this small sort of poorly organized Rohingya insurgent group uh, occurred in August. And August 25th, the Burmese military almost immediately launched another offensive, which is still going on to this day. This very morning that I'm talking to you, I was listening to, I was talking to our staffers on the Bangladesh-Burma border who can see across the river Naf directly into Mungda Township in Burma. And they were describing seeing before their very eyes villages being burned on fire. And it, this, mind you, in the middle of the monsoon, when it isn't exactly easy to set things on fire, everything well, is soaking wet. So, so wait, can, can, you, can you tell me in a little more detail what exactly they were telling you on the phone looking at this, this conflagration happen across the border? Just 
unbelievable levels of human misery and degradation. Thousands of Rohingya are fleeing across the river Naf, uh using whatever flotation they can or swimming or whatever to get across the river into Bangladesh. The Bangladesh border authorities are not turning them back, although they were initially told to. Um, and then they're walking through you know, mud. Again, it's the middle of the monsoon, so the whole place is soaking wet. Uh, they're, they're walking through mud or submerged water, you know, miles and miles to seek some kind of shelter in the nearby city of Teknaf or even up at Cox's Bazaar, another city in Bangladesh. And across the river uh, in Munga, you can see villages, uh, you can see housing structures on fire. And just it, given the level of moisture over the last few weeks, um, these fires have spread you know, through several townships. We've been able to use satellite uh, overflights that, in addition to taking images, also uh, register infrared emissions. This is a technology that's used by NASA to detect forest fires. And um, the software and the hardware is designed in such a way that it only picks up large-scale fires. So where there's a big enough emission of infrared from a particular pixel of the satellite photograph, it will, you know, register it as an intense fire, as a major fire, not like, you know, a campfire or, a you know... Like a forest fire, leaves. yeah. But, like, no, um, if you see this, if you see it flagged on the satellite data... It's because in that pixel, in that kilometer area, there is an intense fire underway. So we're looking at these images, satellite overflight of all of uh, the Indian subcontinent. Five or six times a day, these satellite overflights are taking place. And the whole subcontinent is gray because it's the middle of the monsoon. But then there's this strip between the mountains and the river in Mungdao, a township in Arakan province in Burma where it's red because it's on fire. Um, and, and, and it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a testimony to the fact that if you if you have that level of conflagration, given the the moisture levels that are currently you know the situation there, it's because somebody is intentionally burning this area. So you can't have week in and week out, fires of that intensity, and, and somebody's setting them and using accelerant, gasoline, or whatever to, to make them happen. And, and, and so basically entire villages are being burned to the ground. Uh, portions of villages. I mean, this is the thing. So there, there, there are some villages which, where there are Muslims on one half of the village and Buddhists on the other. And you, know, you can see either whole villages where there's an entire Rohingya village being burned down, or in other like, larger areas like Mungdao city itself, the entire Muslim quarter appears to have been burned down. Um, so, and the level of mm-hmm. displacement is far beyond anything we've seen since 2012. We're now talking about 300,000, 400,000 people across so, it since August 25th. So, so let me ask you about why that is the case. I mean, I, I've been following this issue. This is probably like the fourth episode that I've done on this podcast about the Rohingya issue. Uh, but it is the, the numbers we're talking about, the figures we're talking about are so much more dramatically higher this time around than say last October or during that Andaman Sea boat crisis from, from a few years yeah. ago as well. Why is it so 
so much worse this time around. And I should say, as we are speaking, the latest UN figures were something like 370,000 people fled across the borders. But by the time this is published, that could be much, much higher. Um, just because these numbers are, are dramatically increasing at a very rapid pace. So why is the scale so high right now? Um, yeah, it's absolutely true that the, the numbers have just gone off the charts. I mean, a source told our staff on the ground on the Bangladesh border today that they estimated 50,000 people crossed today from... Uh, and we're recording this on, on Tuesday, the 12th. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's so much bigger now is almost certainly because... There is now the. It's almost certainly because of the existence of this so-called insurgent group that carried out the attacks on August 25th that led to this violence. We believe that the Burmese government, the Burmese military, um, is now utilizing the existence of this group that attacked them as a fig leaf to carry out so-called security operations and cast the conflict as essentially. A security operation, armed conflict situation where they are in a posture of fighting an enemy, this insurgent group, when in reality what's happening is they're carrying out ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity, attacks on a civilian mm-hmm. population. If it turns out that we're right about that, if it turns out that this is part of a plan, a systemic effort to clear areas of Rohingya, that's a crime against, that's crimes against humanity. That is a a very, very serious level offense in international criminal law. And we're talking about um, this is the type of thing that was punished you know, in the Yugoslavia tribunal. Yeah. Well, it, it's sort of like, like a textbook way in which governments commit ethnic cleansing is by using the pretext of an insurgent group to carry out reprisals against the entire community from which that insurgent group is is drawn. I mean, it's you know, a dark yeah. floor. Although this is more yeah. than reprisals. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's one thing to carry out reprisals that are aimed at beating back an enemy. It's another thing to carry out operations which appear to be designed to make an entire population leave an area never to return. Um, Ethnic cleansing is a quasi-legal term. It's not a legal term as such, but it has been given meaning by jurisprudence in the Yugoslav Tribunal. Mm -hmm. The more... You know, but, but crimes against humanity is a legal term, and it has a very specific legal definition. And if you are carrying out a planned and systemic attack on a civilian population to clear it out of an area, um, that, that meets the definition of crimes against humanity. And it may, 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 may meet the definition of genocide. <laughs> It seems, though, that, that as of now, um, the government of, of Burma is, is pretty successful in, in their efforts to, you know, uh, to, to rid the area of this minority population. So, so what, what's the total population size um, of uh, Rohingya that are estimated to be living in, uh, in Myanmar before this current uh, crisis? It's, um, the estimates are very broad, but it's over a million so nobody knows for sure. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows for sure. So over but over a million uh, live there. So basically, a third of the population now seems to have been displaced uh, over the border to to Bangladesh. If those numbers are yeah, if, if those, those numbers are correct. But given the the lack of a sense of reliable census in the last you know several decades, there's no way to know for sure exactly how many remain. Um, but 
given the numbers at the levels they are and the and the and the small geographic area we're talking about, it's entirely possible that very soon you will have no Rohingya in large areas of this township that essentially they will have been cleared out. I mean, because you can talk about the entire western state of Arakan, or you could just talk about Mengdao. Mengdao is the very north part of the state, and um, it's quite possible that very soon that entire township will be devoid of any Rohingya population. So, so this, this latest violence is coming kind of amid uh, what, you know, was at one point heralded as a democratic transition in uh, Burma as a whole, with Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi as the kind of leader of of the party that had that led this uh, democratic transition of the country. So, how is it that she, uh, although she's 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 like the she runs things behind the scenes, but she's not formally the the president or prime minister, pardon me, of of uh, Burma. Um, how is it that she seems so immune to international entreaties to? Uh, put put a stop on to 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 this violence committed by her country's security forces. I mean, you've seen yeah. people around the world try to you know condemn her, call her out, but she she, yeah. she, she doesn't well, seem actually, to care much. Yeah, it, it's actually probably a mistake to focus only on her because um, there's two things. She has been an incredible disappointment because she has failed to condemn the violence, failed to use what power she has to compel the military to not engage in these abuses. With that said, it's not clear whether if she had done what we want, which is condemn the violence, order the military to stop, that the military would in fact stop. And that's because of a structural problem with the transitions of democracy that we've been complaining about and talking about for years, which is that despite winning the elections, despite becoming the de facto head of state, the fact of the matter is Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD party that she runs while having a majority of the population, uh, parliament, does not have control over the defense ministry, home ministry, and border affairs ministry, all of which are ultimately controlled by the Burmese military as such. And 20, in addition, 25% of the Burmese parliament is reserved for parliamentarians who are appointed by the military. So that's obvious. The military obviously still, you know, is is a politically powerful uh, force Absolutely. in the country. Oh, and here's and here's and here's the here's the rub. It is impossible to amend the constitution to change all of this unless you have seventy six percent of the parliament vote for it. So that twenty five percent block that <laughs> is controlled by the military is essentially a veto power over any constitutional amendment to change the Burmese constitution to allow Aung San Suu Kyi or whoever the president or state counselor is to run, to, to, to make an amendment to the Constitution. So, so she mm -hmm. technically has control over the military, but in reality, the military makes their own decisions through something called the National Security and Defense Council. So Burma is essentially in a state of emergency, a de facto state of emergency. It's fighting um, seven or eight insurgencies. It's, it's probably... A, there's no country in the world that is fighting more separate insurgencies than Burma. Mm -hmm. And so they have the military has this kind of outsized role. So what political advantage does it serve the Burmese military to carry out this destructive campaign in in uh Rakhine state against the Rohingya yeah. population? Well, there here's where it gets even more complex because the fact of the matter is Rakhine is a 
a separate ethnic area, right? So the central Burmese plateau, the sort of um, central plains of Burma, which you know Aung San Suu Kyi's government controls, are mostly ethnically Burman. Rakhine State is, or Arakan State, as it's also called, is ethnically Rakhine. They're a different ethnic group from the Burmans, of which Aung San Suu Kyi is. These Buddhist Rakhine are some of the poorest ethnic, it was one of the poorest ethnic groups in Burma. They look down on the even poorer Rohingya Muslims um, uh, with some hatred because, you know, they're poor, but these other people uh, are taking what scant resources, you know, they have. For a long time, the central Burmese government, both the military, Aung San Suu Kyi, they didn't really care about any of these people because it's just this far-flung province out near Bangladesh. Nobody really cared. Back in 2012, when the violence break broke out, the military came in and actually kept security. They they weren't engaged in the violence. They came in and sort of played a part in sort of stopping the violence. This time around, however, things have changed. Now you have a situation where this little insurgent group attacked the Burmese military. So now they're mad. And now, you know, they view um, things a little bit differently. Secondly, anti-Muslim perceptions across the entire country have just grown and grown and grown in the last four or five years. The uh, And they're already the pretty strong to begin with, historically. It's yeah, fair to say. They were right? already pretty strong, but they were kind of lurking in the background. But it all got whipped up into a frenzy in the last four or five years as Buddhist nationalists and some of the Buddhist nationalist um, groups that there are, like the Mabata, which is this, this group of Buddhist monks that you know works to promote Buddhism and Buddhism Buddhist nationalism across the state um, have just ramped up this incredibly toxic anti-Muslim rhetoric about how Muslims are going to take over the country that they you know, they're linked to Al Qaeda all these false claims uh, now a lot of people ask me you know they have a kind of um, unsophisticated view of Buddhism a lot of Westerners ask me. Well, how could these yeah. Buddhists you know, have such hateful attitudes? Yeah, if there is no self, how could they hate? Yeah. Right. No. <laughs> but, but there's a deep misunderstanding of yeah, what yeah. Buddhism is sure. in Asia, first of all. And sure, second of sure. all, the identity here is not Buddhist's religion. It's as a group. I and mean, they're viewing themselves more. It's, I would put the focus on nationalists. These mm -hmm. are Burmese nationalists who see their Buddhist you know, heritage as part of their identity. Buddhism, the religion, is not really part of the equation. Yeah. It's a heritage and a sort of... Well, as is often in these that, cases with any yeah. kind of religion and, and religious yeah. nationalism. But um, be that, whatever it yeah. is, it's it's intensified greatly. And so now I think the military is in more of the mode of, look, this Rohingya crisis has just been a thorn in our side. Maybe it's time to just finish them off. The final solution, mm -hmm. and that's what was so alarming about uh, Minong Lang, the commander in chief, giving uh, a talk last week where he said that what was going on now in Arakan was unfinished business from 1942, when the British withdrew from the area. Um, this is a reference to the idea that all of these Rohingya are foreigners who the British brought in, and now it's time to, you know, essentially kick them back across the border to go back. You know, to Bangladesh, from where they came. This is all fiction, but this is the narrative that they are so, promoting. So this this also all comes just like weeks after Kofi Annan 
released this report. He was, you know, appointed or he he led this commission yeah. um, on the status of Rohingya and, and like the whole, you know, the the ethnic conflict between Rohingya and and and, and Burmese population. And he like just released his report. Um, it was this. What was it? Was, there was like a specific name of the commission that's exca- that's escaping me right well, now. Well, they call it the Rakhine population or the Anand commission, but. Yeah. Yeah, the violence broke out almost immediately after the release of the report. Some people think that the this little insurgent group, this little Rohingya insurgent group that carried out these small attacks, um, was, you know, waiting for that report, and they were sort of using this report mm-hmm. as a moment to attack and whip things up. Well, now, so, for so, their part, yeah. by the way, mm-hmm. they deserve some of the blame because I mean, God knows if you're a downtrodden minority that's being persecuted. Uh, Engaging in an insurgent operations against you know the people who are oppressing you um, is something that you, you know you can be almost certain will result in retaliations against your ethnic group. Um, so I guess they made a decision that that was the right thing to do. But um, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I wouldn't have. <laughs> so so can you talk about the substance of this report? Because you know as you know, I've I've followed Kofi Annan's career for a while. He's he's you know politically astute and 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 thoughtful. So I have to imagine there's probably some good nuggets contained in this report yeah. and in recommendations. So what what did it recommend uh, in terms of like you know reducing or mitigating this this simmering conflict? It had a whole slew of um, recommendations that were technical in nature, but all of them quite excellent. That went to the real heart of what was driving the resentment and anger um, of the Rohingya population and the Rakhine population. So, for instance, the citizenship issue. It is very, uh, the, the citizenship of the Rohingya is very uncertain under Burma's highly problematic 1982 citizenship law. It is not easy if you're a Rohingya to obtain documentation of your citizenship, even if you're entitled to it under international human rights law. You're born in Burma, raised in Burma, your parents were born in Burma. You are a Burmese citizen under international human rights law, but you're not under Burma's highly problematic 1982 citizenship. Hey, they they call them Bengali, right? Like they're. Uh, Yeah, that's. uh, It's basically like you're a group that, if you're Bengali, so to speak, if you can show that. You're descended from family who were there before 1860-something, then you're entitled to citizenship. And they've created an associate citizenship type where you sometimes avail yourself of it, but it's still very difficult to obtain. So Kofi Annan made some recommendations about how to fix citizenship law so that underlying uh, identity issue wouldn't be a consistently bedeviled the situation. On top of that, there's the issue of the travel restrictions and the restrictions on access to health care and economic opportunity. I mean, I think the Yanan Commission recognized quite correctly that the Rohingya population couldn't ever integrate or be integrated unless they're allowed to move around and farm and take their goods to market and go to a hospital and receive health care and everything else. This you know, pressure to ghettoize them and separate them from the rest of the population was not going to lead to civility in the long term. And so, so what um, else? And can, then there were things about yeah. yeah, just just about reconciliation. I mean, basically facilitating um, communities 
leaders being brought together to communicate and talk about ways forward, you know, to move past the uh, tensions and start thinking about how these two communities can reconcile. And so what very what, difficult work, but you know, he made some good practical recommendations for and, how to lead that forward. Well, and so what can the international community at large right now be doing better uh to I suppose, you know, pressure the the government of, of Myanmar to uh halt its ongoing, you know, uh violence against the the its own people, it's the, the Rohingya people. Like what else can the international Well the community international do? system has condemned and pressured already. They've issued very strong statements of concern and everything else. The time now is to talk about hard consequences. Um it's time for the United States and the European Union, which used to maintain sanctions on military leaders and military owned enterprises and the military as an institution, to consider reimposing those sanctions and reimposing um treasury and financial restrictions that make it difficult for those people to avail themselves of the international financial system. Uh, travel restrictions, visa and entry bans for Burmese people implicated in the violence. And it's time to start talking about reimposing a lot of those economic and asset Both like freezes. bilateral and also like UN sanctions as well? Bilateral to start, because the U.S. Quicker, and the EU yeah. could make these decisions quicker. But yeah. at the U.N. level, to talk about a U.N. Security Council resolution with sanctions on Burmese officials is something we're pushing for. But given the Chinese and Russia vetoes at the Security Council, it'll be very difficult to obtain something like that in the immediate future. Why? Maybe what? Down the line. What would? What, why would they uh, have an interest in in this one? You know, one way or the other. Well, they're always reluctant to have country-specific resolutions that impose sanctions. It's even hard to get them on, you know, North Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's even hard to get them on a country which Russia and China don't even care about that much, like say South Sudan. Although actually, China, China doesn't yeah, care about South Sudan. Yeah. In any case, it's hard always, but it's especially hard. You know, China would seek to protect Burma. Uh, and Russia would just seek to undermine, you know, U.S. influence at the Security Council. So it's always difficult to get those sanctions. But that's what we're working for. I mean, I think it's time to talk about an arms embargo on Burma and and uh, sanctions. An arms embargo wouldn't have a huge impact, but because the fact of the matter is, most of the arms are obtained from the Chinese and would continue to be uh, sold probably on the black market. And in fact, Burma even has its own armaments industry domestically, but it would send a strong message if an arms embargo was slapped on them. Uh, well, John, thank you so much for your time and your insights. This was very helpful. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to John. And yeah, as I mentioned earlier, please do share this episode. Do what you can to raise awareness around this issue. This is one of those slow burning global crises that have become very, very hot in recent weeks and shows no real sign of abating. So just get some knowledge around it. Do what you can to, to, to learn about this crisis. I think it behooves all of us as as humans to, to know about these kinds of rampant human rights violations that are going on uh, in a distant part of the world. If that part of the world is distant to you, if you're in Bangladesh or listening to this in Myanmar or the region, then just, just do what you can to, to further raise awareness around this issue. All right. Thank you all. And we'll see you soon. Bye.
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.